We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 and look at the second half of that chapter starting in, in verse 11. I will read that for us, um, and then we're going to pray. And we'll talk about this passage a little bit. Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through 28, and if you have one, it looks like this, it's page 651. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can worship and gather and celebrate you to celebrate the mysteries of our faith. We have come to a challenging passage, a, a difficult uh, part of Scripture because it is foreign to our culture and foreign to our context. And, and these things... There are the parts of our Bible, when we come through them, we want to just skim past them and, and say we, we read it and, and we don't understand. And so we pray that you would give us the ability to 
to, to understand. Give us the ability to hear clearly. Give us um, good comprehension. May my words be faithful to the text that we might understand together not only what it says, but what it means for us. God, we pray. Um, let, me, let me pray, God, for the church of Ephesus this morning. May, uh, as they gather to worship, whatever text, whatever passages, I pray that you give the preachers in each of those churches clarity of message to proclaim their scriptures faithfully and truthfully. We pray those who have gathered to hear well. We pray the same for them that we pray for us. We pray for a movement of faith to grow up here in Cleveland. Christ's name we pray. Amen. As a, a child, I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't understand the good news that Christianity talks about. I was brought up in the church. I, I grew up in what we would call a, a mainline denomination, which are mainline denominations are, are long-standing historical American denominations, uh, which significantly bought into the social cultural program uh, of modernism in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And, and what that functionally means is that they often deprioritized long-held convictions about biblical truth and, and sometimes abandoned them, putting more emphasis on social concerns, which, by the way, those social concerns were important, but it was the balance of priorities that, that distinguished them. The upshot is, is that if you want to know what these churches believe about God, these uh, mainline churches, you better go and see for yourself because it usually isn't as obvious as, say, reading a doctrinal statement or, or just looking at what denomination they belong to. Um, they're some of the largest Protestant denominations in the country. And anyhow, what, what that means is that I was well-versed in a certain amount of religious tradition and formality and ritual. I was baptized as an infant and confirmed as a member about the time I was 12 years old. And I received uh, a Bible at my confirmation, and, and I tried to read it, and I didn't get very far. But I was very curious about religion. I can remember being very curious about religion from a very early age and, and spending a ridiculous amount of time thinking about religious things for a 12-year-old who had no idea what he was I can recall a, a few times uh, of real religious wrestling. And probably about the same time that I was confirmed as a member of, of, of that church. I can remember uh, two in particular. One, one day I was, I, was I think I was 12, and I was standing in the shower. And, and as you know, you're wont to do when you stand in the shower, your thoughts go to whatever, you know. I don't know, some people I guess are just, they get in the shower, and the shower is there to get clean. For me, the shower is there to think about life. Um, and so 30, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, hour, you know. I'm working out life, death, and, and everything else in between. And I can remember seeing the shower wondering, for whatever reason, that morning, I, am I going to go to heaven? And, you know, was I good enough to go to heaven? 
And I had this idea of heaven and, you know, and, and growing up in the church and things like that. And so I generally accepted these, these kind of concepts. Uh, but, you know, the thought was enough to make me stutter a little bit because, you know, as soon as you ask that question, you realize, well, I could answer it yes or I could answer it no. And that's kind of a scary proposition that there's any, you know, probability on the no side of that. And I reasoned that, well, you know, no one can really know. No one can really know if in that final judgment those deeds would measure up enough to be received in heaven. So I did what any good human being would do. I said, I better not worry about it. It's too, too scary a thought. Keep on being a pretty good person. Hope everything else gets sorted out. On another occasion, I recall thinking about Christianity and Judaism and Islam. Uh, and superficially, they all seemed very similar to me. I was 12, mind you, and the only thing I knew about Judaism was what I learned about pre-Jesus stuff in Sunday school classes. And the only thing I knew about Islam was like a page of a sixth grade social studies textbook, right? So I was a genius. Um, and, and I decided I could figure out how all these things really, they're really the same. All these religions are the same. I had it all sorted out. You know, Jews and Christians uh, were basically the same because uh, Jews were, were looking for a Messiah to come, uh, and the Christians believed the Messiah already came. But the Christians thought the Messiah was coming back. So when Jesus comes back, it'll be like the second time for Christians and the first time for Jews, and they'll all be happy and get along. And I'm like, you know, that makes perfect sense. And then, you know, the Muslims got this Muhammad guy, and he's kind of like Jesus, right? So, you know, they're, they're really kind of the same thing, but just with different names. You know, so they're pretty much... It's all good. They're all the same. Um, I had a vague thought about Buddhism. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how that one works yet. Um, but I was going to work it out. And that was all pretty ignorant and arguably very insulting view of all three of those religions. And I bring up my religious tradition, though, because I think it's fascinating that though I was in a church more often than not early in my life, I didn't have answers to some very basic questions. Some things that the Bible definitively speaks to. And yet, despite that, I was accepted into membership of this church without understanding a fundamental doctrine that had once underpinned every Protestant church. And that doctrine can certainly still be found in mainline churches, but it's not everywhere prevalent certainly isn't everywhere cherished. In fact, a number of years after those one days when I was about 18, I heard the wife of my pastor, uh, the pastor at that time, uh, deny this very doctrine and actually just not in board. And the doctrine I'm speaking of is solus Christi, sometimes solo Christo, in or by Christ alone. We're in a, a short series that we, we kicked off the Sunday before Halloween on the bedrock principles of the Reformation. We, we celebrate the, the inauguration of the Reformation on October 31st. And uh, that's because that was the date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door in the church in Wittenberg, as we've said repeatedly, in the year 1517. And so we are 500 years out from that seminal moment in uh, world history, certainly in Western history. And does it still matter? And what is the significance? And are, are we past that? Does theology even matter? 
normally as we, uh, we work through uh, Scripture, normally my habit has been to preach consecutively. We almost always preach expositionally, which means we take a passage of Scripture and, and the, the point of that passage is the point of the sermon. So we are preaching what the Scripture is preaching. Usually we also preach consecutively, which means we kind of go in order and we pick apart books and passages and chapters and paragraphs. Um, we're not preaching consecutively. We are preaching expositionally here. And, and I want to dig into this doctrine of solus Christus. We have looked at three other principles, sola scriptura, that scriptures alone are sufficient for life and holiness. Sola fide, that faith is the only channel through which God's salvation and his dependent blessings are conducted to us. And we looked at it last week, sola gratia, that God's free grace is the only basis for his bestowal of salvation and its blessings on us. And this morning we turn to this corollary, especially of those latter two, sola fide and sola gratia. This corollary called solus Christus. And these three in the middle of our series concern specifically the nature of salvation. And a full treatment of that would require a survey at least of the entire New Testament, if not all of Scripture. But we're turning our eyes to Hebrews 11, 28. Because we need the fact that Jesus Christ is the sole securer of our salvation. Jesus Christ is the sole securer of our salvation. And the author of Hebrews breaks this down by showing us that Jesus is our only priest. He is our only mediator. And he's our only sacrifice. And along the way, we'll see, I think, how this fact, this doctrine that we have cherished for 500 years, and honestly longer, solus Christus. It answered my wrestling as a child, if I'd known it. And we'll conclude by examining how this doctrine is still relevant for us today. So let's look. The, the, this passage breaks up real nice. There's three paragraphs, three points. So we're going to look at the first paragraph here, verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, and so forth. Uh, this passage in general is one of the larger ones that I've preached that wasn't narrative. Narrative, your stories take longer to develop than pointing out facts. So those are longer passages. Uh, we're not going to be able to dig into every word and it, with every detail and every nook and cranny like we normally might, but there's a ton of stuff here, so let's not be discouraged by that. It's like a 30-pound prime rib on Christmas. It's just this large chunk of succulent meat, and we can't eat it all, and we know that, but that's okay. We're still going to pick some stuff off the bone. But we need to give some background. And that's why I had Candace read Leviticus 16 this morning. Because the author is making a, a connection between the sacrificial system under uh, the Israelite religion and how it was set up before Jesus came. And comparing that to the state of affairs when and after Jesus came. In the old system, there was a tent or a tabernacle, a portable sanctuary that moved through the wilderness. When the, when the Jews settled in Israel more permanently, it was replaced by a more permanent figure, the temple. And that place had a courtyard that general worshipers could enter. 
And inside that was a sanctuary. And the priests could enter the first room of the sanctuary when they had cause, but only the high priest could enter the inner second room of the sanctuary known as the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. There, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest made an offering for the entire nation of Israel. But the system was deficient. The author of Hebrews is at pains to point out that these things were external rituals that removed ceremonial defilement but never could cleanse the heart. They were to cleanse the conscience. We won't go too deeply into that because it's not our primary point. I don't think it's generally controversial in this crowd that the sacrifices of goats couldn't make a person's heart right before God. Nevertheless, we do need to understand that the system of sacrifices was necessary at least to remove uh, the filth of the guilt of sin, if not the deep and embedded stain of sin. Otherwise, what we see next becomes very confusing. So beginning in this paragraph, verses uh, 11 through 14, the author sets up Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the new high priest. He is the high priest of the good things which have come. And he makes this comparison. The old high priest entered into an earthly tent made by hands and did so by bringing the blood of sacrificial animals. Notice first he had to offer a sin offering for himself and for his family. And only after doing that was he in good standing to enter the most holy place to offer a sacrifice for Israel. Even the high priest was impure. And this was done annually every year on the Day of Atonement. Not only did the high priest need to purify himself, but he needed to purify the altar, he needed to purify all the instruments of the, 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 the worship, um, the tabernacle itself, because God was basically saying to the Israelites, the very presence of my sanctuary among this filthy people There is a, a sense in which our uncleanness as human beings, our moral filth as human beings is also very filthy. Deep down, I think we understand that. We know that. We, we have a sense in which we are not altogether good. Because we don't often see how bad we actually are. But we do know that we're not as good as we ought. What God shows the Israelites is that that wickedness that is in them has all contaminated power. Not only did the high priest purify himself, he purified the altar from any contamination that picked up in the last year from the Israelites. And as you read Leviticus 16 carefully, you're struck by the sort of dire predicament. Everybody's mourning for their, you know, Aaron, who was the original high priest, is now dead. Might die. Do this, or he might die. Do this, or you guys could die. They were wholly unworthy to come before God. They only did what they were told to do. 
better high priest. He's a better high priest for several reasons. First, the author is at pains to tell us that the earthly tabernacle was a mere shadow, a copy of a heavenly tabernacle. But God truly dwells in all of his glory. And Jesus was the high priest who went into the most holy place of the heavenly tabernacle, not the most holy place of a man-made tent. Second, Jesus entered the tent once for all time. Don't miss that. Don't miss that word once. Once for all. Alone. Only. That is repeated throughout this passage. We have great Nothing's going to blow. At least it hasn't yet in 200 years. Jesus entered the tent once for all. That, uh, once for all time. I think that's the meaning of the, the sense all here. It's in direct contrast to the Israelite high priest who went in repeatedly to offer sacrifices and went in annually to offer the sacrifice for all the Israelites. Jesus' work is complete. It's finished. There is no more work for Jesus to do. Third, rather than offer the blood of various animals, he offers his own blood. Jesus is a better priest because he is both offerer and offering. And that brings a more precious blood with more potent curative powers. And it's possible because Jesus himself was without blemish, without the taint of sin. Therefore, he didn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself before he could enter the tabernacle of heaven. He only offered sacrifice for those who were perfect. And fourth, unlike the old priestly work, which could only purify the flesh, remove the attendant guilt, Jesus' priestly work had the advantage purifying the conscience, the heart. The Israelites of the ancient world, like all human beings, were, were corrupt. And they granted, were granted temporary reprieve by the sacrifice. But the corruption would strike them again the next moment. But Jesus' work cleanses our inmost being so that we can Jesus himself taught his disciples that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are but the vilest of the evil thoughts. Sweet as honeycomb, sour, sweet. And so Jesus reminds us that the depth of our uncleanliness is really at the depth of our heart. The things that we do that are awful in the world, the things that we say, the thoughts that we think that we wish we could, we could take back, that we regret, they're not, I think we tend to think of them as accidents of our nature. They're not, they're not who we are. We've seen this really often in the news, haven't we? In this long list of 
celebrities and politicians and everything else who are being accused of uh, everything from sexual harassment to sexual assault to rape. And a common refrain we hear from those, at least the ones who are admitting to it, it's not who I really am. No, that is who you really are. The things that, that come out of you, the things that they're not accidents of your nature. You're not deep down a really good person who just happens to do awful things on the side. You do awful things on the side. I do awful things on the side because deep down there's a problem in my heart. The upshot, though, of this is that if Jesus has come and, and he has purifies the conscience, not just the, the outward appearance, big difference, right? Then Jesus is able to secure for his people an eternal redemption. This is the idea. We, we talked about this in this series. It's a ransoming, an eternal ransoming. Jesus has secured a ransoming is a securing release upon payment, securing release upon payment. And so Jesus has secured upon payment of his blood the release of sinners from the slavery to sin. The author says it's eternal. And when he says eternal, I think he means it two ways. It's eternal in the sense that those who rest in Christ's work are eternally free. And it's eternal in the sense that the ransoming was eternally secured. So it does not need to be repeated. Jesus is our priest who secured redemption. The author wants us to see that Jesus is our only mediator. This is number two. Jesus is our only mediator. Let me read this one again in full because it's confusing. Verses 15 through 22. Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Let's stop there. This is a, a, a tricky thing because of and what you need to understand is the word covenant and the word will. Covenant and will. In the sense of like a last will and testament, not in the sense of desire. The thing that you get ready for the last day of your life. They're the same word in Greek. Covenant and will. They're the same word. And so the author can shift back and forth between these these two ideas which are very distinct in the American mind. The author can shift back and forth between them a little bit more fluidly because it's the same word. And we sit here and go, I don't understand the logic between a covenant and a will. And, and so let's try to make sense of that. And, and let's start beginning to do that. You see, Jesus is the mediator of a covenant. That's my, that's my point. The author of Hebrews makes it straightforward. But then he defends that. And so we got to see, how does he defend this argument that Jesus is the mediator?
mediator of a new covenant. And the, the result of that, the result of him being the mediator of the new covenant, it says is that uh, those who are called, that means Christians, might receive a promised eternal inheritance. It talks about inheritance. For the ancient Israelites, the inheritance they looked forward to was, was the land. The very land of Israel. But the better inheritance that is eternally in possession of the Christian is nothing less than the joy of having Christ himself forever and sharing in the reflection of his glory. And we have that on the basis of what? Of death. Whose death? The death of the Messiah. Jesus. This, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because the next line opens with for. Verse 16 starts with for, which indicates the author is explaining his reasoning for what he said in verse 16. And he starts talking about wills. And it's probably because the author is, is thinking in terms of inheritance. So he picks up this Old Testament uh, idea of the inheritance of the land by the Israelites, by the Jews. And the idea of inheritance shifts his thinking from the idea of covenant to the idea of will, last will and, and testament. Covenant is sort of a binding agreement set in place by God, and then this last will and testament, the thing that we prepare so that when we die, the things that we have grabbed a hold of in this life can be properly dealt with. Again, they're the same word in Greek. And, and a will, as we think about it, and here we agree, we, we, it cannot take effect until a person's death has been properly established. We get that. We understand that if I have a will that says that if I die, here's how my things and my belongings shall be handled. No one can lay claim to those belongings. No one can lay claim to those things. No one can get access to those bank accounts and you know, books and whatever you know, that I have until I'm actually dead. You don't have any access. And the author then shows that both the Old Covenant of Israel and the New Covenant in Christ both involved a will of sorts because both promised an inheritance, the land and Christ himself, and both required a death. And he reminds us of that fact that death was necessary. And as Candace read for us, there was a whole lot of blood involved, and that meant there was a whole lot of death involved. But what makes this situation amazing, because we, we get lost in the language of wills and covenants, and we might miss the bigger point here, is that Jesus is the one who dies. Well, yeah, I know that. No, but think about that for a second. In a will, right, the one who makes the will is the one who dies. But the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the mediator of this will. He's the go-between. Perhaps we'd use in English the executor. You know, the executor of the will is the person who's designated to, to handle the inheritance. They want to implement the will and ensure that the correct benefits go to the correct beneficiaries. The executor is, without earthly exception, 
different than the one who put down the will because an unfortunate rule of life is once you've died, you don't get to do a whole lot for the living. But Jesus is not only the one who puts down the will, who offers the inheritance, but as the risen Lord, as the one who conquered the grave and rose to new life, who sits enthroned in heaven, he is alive and able to confer upon his church the benefit of an eternal inheritance. So he is the mediator, but he is the mediator of his own inheritance. No man or woman has gone before or gone after Christ and has ever executed his own or her own will. This alone can be claimed by the one who died and rose again. So Jesus is our only mediator. He is the mediator of his own inheritance. Third, in the third paragraph, Jesus is our only sacrifice. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Christ has entered heaven, not into the holy place to play this dance with his copies of earthly things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. Nor was he to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, which any would have had to suffer would seem to be useless to those who enter it. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as, he is, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to take away the sins, but to save them. So he will be the mediator. So now what's been stated in passing said implicitly is drawn out into the open and made explicit. Now everything in the Old Covenant needed to be purified by these ceremonies, the drinking water and the blood of the sacrifice. But if these things were acceptable to the manly, they would be acceptable to the heavenly. Meaning, the most perfect sacrifice. Because Jesus is not only priest, but sacrifice. And what the author says here is so important that we miss the gospel, we miss the very heart of what Christianity is all about if we miss this. Jesus is the very presence of God on our behalf. No earthly priest, however styled, no matter what faith or religion, can represent us before God like Jesus. He can represent us because he is, as the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1, the exact radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is to say, Jesus was and is very God. And yet, he was a man like us. If a priest is one who goes between God and man, then there can be no better priest than the one who is both God and man, Jesus Christ. 
Unlike the earthly sacrifices that were offered continually, Christ's sacrifices were made just once. The author sarcastically remarks that if it were any other way, Christ would have had to suffer since the foundation of the world, and that's ridiculous. So, he has appeared once, and he has offered himself once. One sacrifice offered for all time, for the many, for those who would come to him in faith. And he did this by offering himself. And there's more he's coming again. See, he came once to deal with sin, it says, but he comes again to save. And now you might be thinking, especially if you've been a Christian for a while, uh, that removing sin is salvation. I've been saved. We like to talk past tense. I've been saved. And in a sense, you are right, but the scriptures speak of salvation as past tense, present tense, we are being saved, and it talks about salvation as future, we will be saved. And so there is a sense in which salvation has a future component, and it depends on what we look at and what we're thinking we're being saved from. To the extent that we are saved from the estrangement with God, you could say that we have salvation now because Jesus has gone before God on our behalf. But if you consider that all of us will die, as the text said, it's appointed for man to die once and then face judgment. So we will die and we will face judgment, then there's another sense of salvation for each of us who will go before the judge. Jesus. Jesus died. And death could not hold him. He rises again, and so he is fit to judge. And he, we will die to face that judgment. We will give an account. And if the story that we have to tell on that day is merely a list of the accomplishments in this life, a sort of spiritual resume, fall woefully short. See, our, our sins tilt the scales of justice forcefully against us. And we will be lost. We will be destroyed. But if the story we have to tell on that day is this, nothing but Christ have I to claim no money, power, deeds, or fame. If our story on that day is, I cling to Christ who died for me, then the verdict will be innocent, not guilty. So Jesus, and so in Jesus offering a, a sacrifice, there's both hope and there's a warning. There's a warning of impending judgment, a judgment that will not go well for anyone who points to their own record. Instead, we must be able to point to the record of Christ. So this is significant for us today. It's still relevant. fact, he is the judge. He is the, so he is the central focus of every element of our salvation. 
He's the priest who makes atonement for our sins so that we can be saved from God's wrath. At the same time, he is the sacrifice which turns away God's wrath from us. He is the one who makes the promises of blessing, and he is the one who bestows the blessing. And he will pass the final judgment on our souls. Salvation is wrought in Christ alone. Had I seen this clearly when I was 12, I would have recognized two things as a young child. And one is that Jesus is the only way to remedy the fundamental problem that faces each one of us. Wondering and worrying about whether my good deeds would tip the scales in my favor, I would have understood the answer is no, not by any shot. As Isaiah writes, all our deeds are like filthy rags. But I would have understood that in Christ, My filthy rags can be removed, and I can put on glorious robes of pure, spotless I would not have been so foolish to think there could be alternative paths to like the say Messiah less Judaism or Islam. never would have recognized or never would have thought about whether my goodness was sufficient to merit salvation. And it wasn't. No amount of effort on my part could get me into heaven. Only relying purely on Christ's effort on my behalf. In the midst of the Reformation, a great amount of the church loosely speaking, a great number of those who profess Christianity would, like us today, probably be looking at our own personal records of good deeds and bad deeds and determining how much likelihood there was that we would return to heaven or how much time we could spend in purgatory. I talk to Christians on the regular who still think in this paradigm of do my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds? Do I stand righteously before God or not? Do the things that I have done condemn me or not? Perhaps none of the early reformers grasped the doctrine of sola sufficiency verbum even Holdrich Zwingli contemporary of Martin Luther who labored in Zurich, Switzerland. Zwingli was drawn to many of the same conclusions as Luther, but independently of him. In his 67 articles, um, which were sort of like his 95 theses, he makes several points. In fact, they, they are sort of a great testament doctrine of sola sufficiency. He disagrees, with, for instance, with those who teach that the mass, the, the Christian worship ceremony, uh, or the Eucharist in particular, 
as it was commonly practiced in those days, was an actual sacrifice of something. Because he argued Christ sacrificed once for all, is what the author of Hebrews said. He argues against the intercession of the saints. The idea of going to the saints so that the saints could go to God on our behalf. He argues against that because he says Christ alone is the only mediator that we need. Jesus is already there in the presence of the Father interceding on our behalf. Why would we go to another human being? He argues against the Pope and others who style themselves as priests because Christ is our only high priest. Zwingli's articles and, and many other important documents, by the way, flowing out of the Reformation. They're, they're on our website. They're on our, uh, if you go to the resources tab and click on Reformation 500, it, it put a list of these for your edification, um, your perusal. But Zwingli understood the centrality and uniqueness of Jesus Christ in the gospel must be rescued from the abuses of those who have easily neglected him. It's kind of a lesson we've always learned very well. Most of us in this room are probably uh, not uh, in particular uh, drawn to um, recognize priests, uh, to pray to saints, things that at the Lord's Supper we are offering another sacrifice of Jesus. Most of this room probably are not. But of course those, those beliefs um, still persist in, in many places in the world. But I would challenge us too what have we substituted in their place? I'd argue many, many Christians substitute a pastor for a priest, or they substitute um, a, a, a wiser, older Christian for a priest. They think that maybe they can't go to God on their own, and so they need to go to a religious figure who could bring them to God. But the truth is that if Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, and rose again because the punishment of sin could not hold him in the grave, then we have the ability to directly access the Father through the work of Jesus Christ. Countless variations of Christianity have sprung up in the intervening 500 years. Some of them have been established movements, within established movements, and some of them have been introduced in cults. And inevitably, it seems they have come to add to the finished work of Christ, as if Christ, the priest, and the mediator, and the sacrifice isn't alone enough. As if there must be something more. Often it's good works or a religious ceremony. But brothers and sisters in Christ, salvation fully paid for in Christ's work alone. When Jesus said it is finished, 
work is done. It is complete. And so the fundamental spiritual problem of human beings, the fact that we are separated from our maker by our rebellion against him, is satisfied in Christ. Jesus Christ completed the work. It is bestowed upon us by his grace alone. In other words, it is the free offer, a free gift. It was based solely in his good pleasure, in the very goodness of God. He doesn't bestow this gift on you because you're worthy of it. He doesn't bestow it on me because he looked at me and he said, Chris is a really good dude. I like him. I want him. Bestows his grace as a gift, as unmerited, as undeserved, as free. And we access that through faith alone. It's not like he pours out his grace on us uh, to, to rescue us from our sin by believing in him and doing a whole lot of things. No, because then grace wouldn't be grace. We access it through faith alone, through this sort of two-edged pursuit of, of, yes, intellectual agreement, belief, but also relational commitment of trust. And though we've rebelled against our Father, though we've rebelled against God, though we have committed things that we wish we hadn't committed, we have thought things that we wish we hadn't thought, we have said things we wish we hadn't said, and though our imperfections put an infinite gap between us and a perfectly good God and a cross of Christ bridges that gap. For the Christian, that means all the more rest in the Christ Stop trying to make yourself worthy of God's grace. You won't be. Accept what he has done on your behalf. And for the non-Christian, it's an opportunity, it's an answer, it's a possibility. The idea that your true purpose and your true hope and your true longings Finally and forever 